Well, the text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 18. Continuing to move through the book of Psalms, find ourselves this month at Psalm 18. This psalm appears in one other place in Scripture. You'll find it in, in uh, 2 Samuel 22. Uh, quoted almost exactly as we find it here, with, a few, with the exception of a few words. And we also find that same heading that we find here, uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this psalm on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so this is likely a psalm that was recorded, uh, David wrote later on in his life. In Second Samuel, this is uh, recorded for us uh, sort of as, as one of the last uh, uh, psalms of, uh, of David. Um, and a beautiful psalm, uh, certainly a lengthy psalm describing uh, the Lord's deliverance of his people. Uh, this will be the first psalm I'm going to break up uh, through our, our study of, of the book of Psalms. I'm going to break it up into to three sections, Lord willing, uh, this month, just considering the first 19 verses. Then uh, the following months, uh, we'll consider the, the later portion of, of this psalm. So this morning, let's hear God's word as we find it in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 19. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Pains of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, he heard my voice from his temple, and even and my cry came before him, even to his ears. And the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe. Lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. And the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out in a broad place. He delivered me because 
He delighted in me. Last month, when I preached on Psalm 17, I quoted the words of a Pakistani pastor who commented that Psalm 18 is the most popular psalm in Pakistan because it represents God's providence, safety, power, deliverance, and kindness. As we move now to consider Psalm 18 over the next three months, we will be looking specifically at the character of our God as he is revealed to us in Psalm 18. And like the Pakistani church, I trust we too will find much comfort for our souls from these words that are recorded for us. After all, just consider the joy In the opening three verses, where David cries out, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. What a a description of who David's God was. And just notice how frequently David says, this is his personal God, over and over and over again. He says, this is my deliverer, my fortress, my gods, my stronghold. This is a personal song of praise to God. What a description of God for us to consider amid the many trials and difficulties of life. God is our salvation, that he is our stronghold, that he is our deliverer. What comfort for us. And what what a beautiful theology we have here of God, correcting often our, our wrong and even idolatrous conceptions about who God is, this psalm sets us right with, with describing the character of our God. So as we look at the deliverance of our God from Psalm 18, I want you to be considering, if you are able to use these words yourself, even as, as David very personally does, if you are able to use these words yourself to describe who your God is in the varying circumstances of your life. Names and, and attributes to, that David gives for God here can be a, a great help to our spiritual life. These are names we, we ought to be incorporating in, in our prayer lives as we, we uh, bring our petitions to God. And so let's consider these words from Psalm 19, looking specifically at the deliverance of the Lord and why we can, with David, invest both our love and our reliance upon the Lord. And to do this, we need to first consider our great need for deliverance. The psalm starts with these very personal declarations of of David saying, I will love you, O Lord. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. But why does David do this? Why will David call upon the Lord? It's because David recognizes his great need for deliverance. 
The living God here in our sermon text has sober warnings for those who are lost in their sin and do not know God as their deliverer. David spoke of how the Lord was his strength, his rock, his fortress, and his deliverer. What awaits those who do not know the Lord as their rock, their fortress, and their deliverer? What awaits you if you do not have the Lord as your your Savior? What awaits you if you do not love God? Well, the psalmist tells us, David tells us here, the pains of death surround you. Notice that David says the pains of death surrounded him. This is something that they used to be before he was delivered. But the pains of death will surround those who do not have the Lord as their fortress. This is not something that will be way off in the future. That, oh, well, maybe the pains of death will surround me if I do not know the Lord. No, the pains of death surround you even now if you do not know the Lord as your fortress. The sad reality is is that likely you are not aware of them. Because like a mother who uses epidural to, to help with the pain of child delivery, so our busy life so often distracts us from, from the pains of death. Busy lives here on this earth deaden us to these pains. Life of entertainment and pleasure-seeking distracts and numbs us to the reality that one day we will indeed die. A life of distraction deafens us to the pains of death. And yet the older you get, the more dismay and, and hopefully will become real to you. The more suffering you face in this life, the more death you encounter, the more terrifying the reality of your own death will become. If you are in any way apprehensive about your own death now, consider how much more apprehensive you will be when you're 60 years old or or 70 years old. And death seems just a little ways away. Those who do not know the Lord, the pains of death surround them. David uses very specific imagery to speak of these pains. Imagery that that sadly isn't carried exactly over into our English translation. David here uses imagery of an ensnared animal. If you know anything about uh, snaring an animal, you know that you have to do it with a a thin piece of, of wire or rope. You know, make that into a noose, and then you use that to either trap the, the leg of the animal or, or have that uh, noose wrap around its neck. And when that, that animal becomes ensnared, the more it fights against that snare, the tighter and tighter that snare gets until, um, until that, that animal dies um, from being strangled to death. The, the reality with that animal is that, is that the more it's struggling, the more it's, it's fighting against that snare, the more pain it brings upon itself. More tightly that rope wraps around its neck until the life of that animal has been snuffed out. 
For those lost in their sins, this is what is happening to them. With every single day of their life, they rebel against God more and more. They are adding sin to the weight of their trap. They are damning themselves to greater and greater degrees. They are tightening that noose around their neck even more. And some of them will recognize this even. I will forever remember the terrifying words of a man I encountered on the streets when I was doing some street evangelism uh, back in my hometown in Edmonton. He very quietly and soberly told me, I know I'm going to hell. And then he walked away. The man had a profound understanding of where he was going. He had a profound understanding of the pains of death that were surrounding him. Yet rather than turn to the Lord for deliverance, he simply walked away. The terror of that man drove him to hopelessness and complacency. In a very terrifying place to be. But how many are there who, like David in our text, have the spiritual eyes to see the flood of ungodliness ready to sweep them up to eternal destruction. David said, these floods of ungodliness made me afraid. David pictures these floods of wickedness as though he were standing in a valley and this flash flood is coming Upon him from the mountains, ready to, to sweep him away. Splash flood, raging and foaming, knocking over trees and boulders, ready to engulf his life. So, too, our sins are like an insurmountable wall of water washing us away into the fires of hell. Certainly for David here, his, his enemies were very real human beings seeking to take his physical life. How these are pictures, too, of spiritual reality that every single one of us is faced with. Our enemies of sin and death stand threatening to engulf us. There's a terrifying reality with what David is describing here, or with these pains of death, with the, these floods of ungodliness, with these sorrows of Sheol and the snares of death. These are sobering words, sobering descriptions of our profound need for deliverance. Yet, there's much hope in this psalm. David doesn't remain there, as I already mentioned. He's, he uses these descriptions in the past tense. He says, the pains of death surrounded me. That, that's where it used to be the state of me. He said, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. He didn't say, they make me afraid. No, they used to make me af afraid. I'm no longer afraid of these. This is all in the past tense because David has his hope in the Lord. David cries out to God, seeing the great distress and the great predicament and, and the great uh, 
terrifying reality of where he is headed. Yet in the midst of that, he calls out to the Lord. He hopes alone in the Lord. David says there, in verse 6 of our text, In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. David's confident that that the Lord heard his cry, that his God would help him. Then David moves into these beautiful declarations of how the Lord proceeded to help him. God was pleased to deliver David. And as you call upon God to deliver you from your sin, I want you to notice God's anger in that deliverance. Psalm 18, verse 7 through 8 says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. We truly listen to what David is describing for us here. This, this is a, a, a rather bleak picture. If, if we were to see this with our own eyes, I, I think we would all be rather terrified at it. After all, we, we get terrified of, of even things like natural, natural things like volcanoes and earthquakes. This is a, a supernatural uh, uh, manifestation of, of the Lord's presence and his anger and judgment. While what is described here, while having some of the imagery of of earthquakes or volcanoes is infinitely more terrifying. After all, an earthquake or, or a tornado or a, a volcano, that, that's all localized. You might be able to even run from those things. Our text says the presence of God's anger has a power to shake the earth and cause fire to go before him wherever God might be. God who is omnipresent can visit any location or person in his fierce anger. David describes for us a terrifying picture. And yet, David does not say this in any way being terrified that somehow God is coming against him to destroy him. But rather, remember that David is singing these words, declaring his great love for God and using these words to, to praise his, his God. And, because, and, and David does this because he knows that God's anger is part of how God is going to deliver him. This is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament. In Sunday school this morning, we we looked at the Son of Moses. Uh, We also saw that last week as well. In, In Exodus 15, Moses recounts God's deliverance of Israel from the armies of the Egyptians. In that song, Moses sings these words. He says, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath, consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. 
Notice there that God's anger was a a fundamental aspect of God's deliverance of his people. It wasn't simply God's uh, uh, bringing judgment upon the Egyptians that he was angry. No, we, we also notice that it also paved the way for Israel to be delivered. It was the Lord blasting the the breath of his nostrils like an angry bull might snort that he, with which he created that path in the Red Sea. You are mistaken if you think you just need the love of God to be saved from your sins. You also desperately need the wrath and anger of God to be saved. You need God's anger against your sin. Well, God's anger certainly condemns you in your sin. His anger is also necessary for your salvation. Because you need God's anger against your sin to, to, to have that sin wiped away through Jesus Christ. God responds in righteous anger both to his people's sins and their enemies so that he might deliver them from both. We often think of God's anger as being against us in judgment. When we sin, we, we, you know, I'm very concerned that God is as angry at us, that we stand exposed to the judgment of God. We all must also consider, as the people of God, that his anger burns against our sin. And it is that anger, not just his love, that spurs him to deliver us. If we have been elected by God, if we are indeed God's chosen people, our sin stands as a barrier to our relationship with God. God in his anger hates our sin and desires to have that consumed up so that we can be righteous in his sight and be be restored in relationship with him. God's anger accomplishes that. God's anger accomplishes our redemption. Certainly, God's love is key here, but also God's anger. God's anger means he will be moved to do something about our great plight. It's no small thing that God accomplishes. Our text uses imagery of earthquakes and smoke and fire to indicate the burning wrath of God. If your sins terrify you, if the flood of your ungodliness makes you fear for your eternal life, trust in the anger of God to, to burn up your sin as it was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in the perfect fierceness of his anger, poured out a cup of his wrath upon Jesus Christ as your substitute. And Christ willingly drank of his Father's cup to redeem you from your sins. He bore the brunt of his Father's anger so that he could deliver you. So know God's anger in deliverance. But also know God's speed in deliverance. When you cry to God in faith, you can be sure that he will indeed hear your cries. And he will do so with speed. Notice how God answered David's prayer in verses 9 and 10. 
We read there, he bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the winds. God doesn't delay to hear David's prayer. He rides upon the cherubim to rescue David. Now, we might have some question about what it means that God rode upon the cherubim. What, what, what's, what's David ultimately getting at? Well, you might have a, a bit of an explanation here in, in Psalm 68, verse 17. Psalm 68, 17, we're, we're told that uh, uh, the cherubim are also called God's chariots. And what we have here in, in Psalm 18 is, is likely a poetic description speaking of the speed of, of God's answer to David's prayer. He rides forth from heaven with the speed of, of a chariot to, to help. He doesn't delay. No, he uses what in, in that time period would have been the fastest vehicle around it, a chariot. you consider your sins you might have doubts in your mind about the lord you might question if he will indeed hear your cries for salvation you might think your sins are too great for you to be saved you might consider the pains of death to be too powerful and strong you might think a god will be slow even reluctant and begrudging to help perhaps you even think of god like your own Father, you have to tiptoe around when you want to ask him for something, not knowing if he'll be willing or if he will get upset in, in, in you asking him. This psalm tells us God is far different from our earthly fathers. David cried to God, God rode upon the cherubim to swiftly answer and help David. He didn't delay whatsoever. Indeed, he was, in a sense, expecting David to cry out. In Isaiah 65, verse 24, we read these words. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. God hears the cries of his people even before they cry out to him. God is so fast with his deliverance. As the words are coming from their lips, he is already answering their cries. Isn't this the imagery of God we have in the parable of the prodigal son? Prodigal son, after wishing his father was dead and frivolously spending his father's inheritance, thought his father would be reluctant to help him when, when he, he decided, well, uh, it would be better for me to go back to my father. I, I can at least live there and I can have you know, at least a, a decent meal and maybe my father will be, um, uh, allow me to be a servant. The prodigal son uh, made it up in his mind to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the prodigal son went home, expecting his father to be reluctant to help him, but hopeful that his father would at least make him a servant. Yet as he approached home, we 
we are told that when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Even with all the shame that this son had brought upon his father, his father didn't care. Instead, he ran to his son with great compassion. And before the son is even able to ask if he can work as a hired servant, the father is requesting servants to bring out a robe and a ring and sandals for his son and, and ordering them to prepare this great feast. Lord, speedy to deliver his people. He's not begrudging his deliverance. No, he, he, he wants to lavish his deliverance upon his people. Father ran to his prodigal son in that parable, seeking to be reconciled to him. So the Lord runs to his people, seeking to be reconciled to them. Never say, the Lord will not hear you if you cry out in faith to him. Second Peter 3, 9 puts it differently. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Translate that word slack as hesitance. God is not hesitant with his promises. Do not let false thoughts of God's reluctance to save you hinder your coming to him. So often create false ideas about who God is in our mind. Yet Psalm 18, the parable of the prodigal son, Second Peter 3, 9 tells us that, that God is, is speedy to deliver his people. Isaiah 59, verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. The Lord indeed is gracious and loving towards his people, speedy to answer their cries. But also one of the very clear images that comes out of our text is God's power in deliverance. Read in verses 13 through 15. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the breast, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. But never, ever to think God is not powerful enough to save us. We are never, ever to think that our sins are too great for God to rescue us from them. We are never, ever to think that death is too great an enemy for God to deliver us from death. Nor are we ever to think that the foes of our own flesh, the devil, or the world are, are too mighty to keep us from salvation. There's no foe or weapon devised by man or even in this vast universe that can defeat the Lord's power to deliver. 
And yet how often we do think thoughts like that. We do think, well, maybe the Lord needs a little of my help. Maybe I can just muster up enough willpower in myself to conquer this sin in my life. Think the Lord needs help in our salvation. And yet, Psalm 18 gives us an entirely different picture. A picture of, of the Lord being of the utmost power and might to deliver his people. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice hailstones and, and coals of fire. David doesn't have have the words or the imagery to describe the, the awesomeness of the Lord. And so he uses the, these descriptions of God coming from, from nature, of, of how uh, God is surrounded by this great cloud of darkness and how lightnings and, and thunders proceed from him to get at the awesomeness of who our God is. There's no enemy that can defeat the power of this God. Micah 7 verse 8 says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. There is no enemy that can defeat the Lord. Even though there might be an enemy that, that rejoices over God's people. Micah says, when I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. The Lord will deliver his people. And he will do so with great power. Paul says in Romans eight thirty one. Asking that important question. If God be for us, who can be against us? And he lists almost every single imaginable foe that can be brought conceivably against God. He concludes, not one foe will be able to be against God's people. Because God is for them. Truly, who can be against this God who, who sends out his arrows and scatters the foe? If you cry out to this God for salvation, be sure that he will mightily deliver. When the early church prayed for boldness, did the Lord not respond by pouring out his spirit and causing the earth to shake? And if you call out to God for deliverance from your sins, will the Lord not respond by washing away all your sins in the blood of Jesus Christ? Recall that when Christ was crucified, he caused the earth to be black for three hours. Caused the earth to shake and the tombs to be opened as a declaration of his power and his might in deliverance. God delivered Israel from the land of Egypt. Was it not with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, bringing plague upon plague upon plague upon Egypt, showing to Israel his might and his power? Lord, indeed, 
powerful to save. Indeed, while the Lord is powerful to save, he is powerful to judge as well. How foolish are the words of atheists who say that if they are wrong about God's non-existence and they die and are brought face to face with God, that they will say, how dare you, God? How dare you create this type of world that we're living in? How dare you, God, create all this suffering? Utter foolishness to say in light of the words of our text, the Lord thundering from heaven, Lord causing hailstones and coals of fire to proceed from him, Lord sending out arrows and scattering his foes. How foolish are those words. How foolish is it to try to run from this God in rebellion. God's arrows will surely find those who do not turn to this God for deliverance. Spurgeon warns sinners with these words, God's arrows never miss their aim. They are feathered with lightning and barbed with everlasting death. Fly, O sinner, to the rock of refuge before these arrows stick fast in your soul. God's power to deliver is also power to judge. How we ought to be seeking God's power to deliver us from our sins and find in the Lord refuge from his arrows. Yet there are some who will not come to God because they think he is an impersonal God or even a distant God. Yet Psalm 18 once again tells us the exact opposite. God condescends to deliver his people with his personal presence. See, God is not content to empower man to help themselves. God is not content to use nature to deliver his people from their enemies. Nor is God content to just let angels deliver men. No, God must come down himself from heaven to deliver his people. In doing so, God makes his immense love and care known for his people. Verse 9 reads, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. God himself is the one who delivers here. God is not cold to his people. He loves them. He does not simply save them, but brings them into relationship with himself. Saw last month from Psalm 17 that the Lord loves and cares for his people as, as the apple of his eye. Psalm 17 verse 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Isn't this, hasn't this been the case throughout the history of the church? The Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt. Do not just... Well, Moses, you, you figure out how to, to lead these people. No, the Lord came down himself to Mount Sinai to, to deliver the people himself, to, to reveal himself to the people and to lead them. And, and Moses' Moses' prayer when Israel sins of the, uh, with, with the golden calf is, is that the Lord would continue to go with them, that he would not depart from them, that Moses wouldn't just be leading them by himself. No, Moses interceded for Israel that God would continue to deliver them and be 
specifically with them. Constant tension of the Old Testament is that Israel's sins keep them from having relationship with God. God promises again and again that he will dwell with them. He does so with those teaching tools of the tabernacle and the temple. Saw that David referenced that in in, uh, verse uh, 6. David says, he heard my voice from his temple. And yet that, that teaching tool, that symbol was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, in Jesus Christ being Emmanuel, God with us. We read of in, in Philippians 2, of, of Christ appearing in the form of a man, that he might redeem us, of God condescending so that he could redeem us. We could say our, our deliverance is not, not from angels, it's not from men, no, it's, it's from God himself because of God's great love for his people and his desire to save them. God's condescension is a declaration of his love for his people. And that is a love that is brought out directly in the last verse of our text. Verse 19 says, He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Sometimes we can be slow in coming to God because we fear he is angry with us. We fear that he tolerates us. We fear that he actually despises us. That's not what we're told here in Psalm 18 that God delivers us because he delights in us. Sentiments repeated in Zephaniah 3.17 where God says he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God delivers his people because He loves his people. He delights in his people. What profound thing for us to consider this morning as we think of the character of our God. As we ask ourselves, who is our God? Is he can we say of our God, of, of the God of the Bible, that he is my deliverer, that he is my fortress, that he is my strength, my God? Can we say that? And if we can indeed say that, what a beautiful thing it is to know that this God delights in us. What joy that you bring to our hearts this morning. That God delights in us. We who, who are, are, are so often sinning and breaking his law. That he delights in us. That he, he saves us from our sins because he delights in his people. We who have been surrounded by the pains of death. We who have been threatened by that wave of ungodliness. The Lord delights in us. 
and he delights in his people because he is a God who is ultimately zealous for his own glory. They did not start this psalm praising God for his salvation. I wasn't at the forefront of, of David's mind here. No, David praised God ultimately for who he is. You see there, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. David loves his God. He loves who his God is. He loves his character. He loves his attributes. He, he loves everything about his God. When one is saved from their sins, they realize that there is something far more extraordinary than being delivered from their sins. There's something far more beautiful than that salvation. The thing of greater beauty is a character and person of God. God's awesome power and might, of God's holiness, of God's love, of his, his perfect character. The cry of all those who are saved is that they will love God no matter what. For he has loved them. He has delighted in them. He indeed is an awesome God. And so as we go through the many different trials the Lord is pleased to place us in, particularly this month. As we see a, a world run after the gods of, of gender identity and sexual pleasure, let us delight in our God who has everlasting worth, God who is of inestimable worth in terms of our praise, a God who is our strength, our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. Let's praise him this month. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you, loving you, O Lord. Lord, we thank you for how you have revealed yourself to your people. What beautiful words we have to, to consider your character. Lord, we pray that you would ever bring us into relationship with yourself, that you would ever be our covenant Lord, that you would save us from our sins, save us from the pains of death and hell, that we might rejoice in you, that you would receive the praise for you alone are worthy. Father, we pray that you would go with us this month as we meditate upon these first 19 verses of, of Psalm 18. Lord, we pray that this would feed our, our spiritual life. That, Lord, as we meditate upon your character, that we would be encouraged in your love for your people. That, Lord, we would know that you indeed delight in us. Father, we pray this, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. In his name.